Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. And through the afternoon, we uh, listened as the lunar module swerved down to within 10 miles of the moon's surface. On the second trip around, went through a dramatic moment. We had eight heart-stopping minutes there uh, earlier this evening as they went into wild gyrations in that lunar module after separating from their uh, descent stage. Uh, We've found out what the problem is, and we'll be looking at that in a moment. What has happened uh, since that time, they... uh, They fired their thrusters of the lunar module ascent stage at that uh, low point over the moon and began the rendezvous maneuvers. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 197 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Ascent Stage Rendezvous, Docking and Jettisoning. The previous episode ended with the ascent insertion burn. Now Snoopy was chasing down Charlie Brown, first to rendezvous and then to dock. NASA chose a conservative rendezvous method for the early two-vehicle missions. The final closure rate between the two spacecraft and the lighting conditions at rendezvous were the primary concerns. They chose the co-elliptic rendezvous method with the lunar module as the primary active role and the command and service module calculating and preparing to back up the maneuvers should the limb run into trouble. To arrive at these final approach conditions, the rendezvous sequence was broken into three parts. First part, co-elliptic sequence initiation. Second part, constant delta height. Third part, terminal phase initiation. At the time of the first lunar module Apolloon, following the insertion burn, the co-elliptic sequence initiation maneuver would be used to effectively circularize the lunar module's orbit. Half an orbit later, the constant delta height maneuver would place the lunar module in an orbit that was constantly 15 miles below that of the command service module. This gave the lunar module time to track the command service module using the rendezvous radar and calculate the parameters for the terminal phase initiation maneuver. The experience in rendezvous gained during the Gemini two-manned Earth orbital missions showed that the terminal phase of the rendezvous should commence approximately 130 degrees behind the optimum location for the final rendezvous and docking, and the station keeping and docking needed to take place when the lighting was most appropriate. Also, they wanted to have the lunar module approach from a lower orbit, visible against the lunar surface as seen from the command and service module. 
and the command service module would appear fixed against the celestial background as seen from the lunar module. Most of the terminal phase would take place in darkness and the final braking phase in daylight just after the orbital sunrise. Following the terminal phase initiation maneuver, the limb would start to climb up to the command service module orbital altitude. At this point, there would be two opportunities to make mid-course corrections if required before arriving at the final braking phase. Three braking maneuvers were planned. Keep in mind, the lunar module at this stage was very light and extremely responsive to firing of its reaction control system. Also keep in mind that the command and service module could back up these maneuvers if required but was still considerably heavier and less responsive than the lunar module. Okay, that's the theory, and it worked very well on Apollo 10. As the lunar module approached, Young saw it through his sextant at a distance of 259 kilometers. Stafford and Cernan got a radar lock on the command module shortly after the insertion burn and watched with interest as the instrument measured the dwindling gap between the vehicles and demonstrated the theories of orbital mechanics in actual practice. Cernan especially liked the steady communications that kept both crews aware of what was happening. After watching the command module from as far away as 167 kilometers and then losing sight of it at sunset, the lunar module pilots saw Charlie Brown's flashing light with their unaided eyes at 78 kilometers. With the spacecrafts now growing closer and closer, I have a clip on how the rendezvous and docking were expected to proceed. We can go out to uh, Downey, California, the North American Rockwell's plant there, where correspondent Bill Stout and test astronaut Leo Krupp were standing by. Gentlemen? Walter, I think Leo can give us a pretty good idea of what they have to go through in this rendezvous. Once they get in sight of each other, I guess technically, Leo, it is rendezvous, even though they may be a good distance apart. Well, the rendezvous phase will start at 100 feet, and then the, the lunar module will fly into very close proximity of the command module, up to within maybe three or four feet, actually, of, of the command module, before the lunar module will go into attitude hold. The command module will then become the active vehicle for the, for the actual docking. Now, on Apollo 9, Jim McDivitt stayed active in the lunar module all the way in and did an active limb docking. But as you remember, he had quite a bit of difficulty because our target is very small in the command module and he had trouble lining it up. But on the lunar module, we have a very nice big target, as you can see here. Now, in looking at this target at the present time, you can see that we're a little bit too far to the left. So the first thing John will do is translate his vehicle to the right until he gets that standoff cross superimposed on the back cross. That'll give him the proper line of sight for the docking. And then the lighted reticle that you see is the COAS or the uh, crewman's optical alignment sight. Now this tells him if he has the proper vehicle attitude. Now actually our nose is pointed a little bit high and to the right. So he'll take the rotation hand controller and he'll maneuver the vehicle in attitude to bring that COAS reticle down right on the docking target. Now when the COAS reticle is on the target, and the cross is superimposed as it is right now. We're 
have all conditions satisfied for docking, he will then start to move in on the lunar module at about 0.25 feet per second, very slowly, until the probe and drogue mate, and he's in a soft dock condition. Walter, I was talking with Leo a few days ago about that circle of dots. You see the light dots and the black circle around the standoff T? Those are radioactive material, Leo. That's right. They're a reflective material, Bill, and we have them on there in case it's necessary to do a docking in, in darkness. Now, we also have a docking light on the, uh, on the command module located outside the command module above our heads, which will shine on this target. And if we had to do a docking in, in darkness, these dots would illuminate and we could actually see the target well enough to, to do a, a, darking, a docking on the dark side. Well, the reason, Walter, for using radioactive material in those dots is uh, visibility, obviously, perhaps in the blackness of the far side of the moon. And yet the restrictions that our government lays down on radioactive material are so severe that many of the astronauts had a hard time getting close to the radioactive material they might face for the first time in outer space. The rules about using radioactive stuff of that sort on Earth are, are that stringent. And I guess there were a good many meetings before they finally got around to the point where they actually showed the astronauts the kind of radioactive dots they could expect someday to meet in the blackness of outer space. Have any idea, uh, Bill, why they had to go to a radioactive material rather than the kind of fluorescent stuff we use here on Earth and bumper stickers and everywhere else? Leo, it won't work, will it? Well, I don't know the technical reason why, Walter, but I think the problem was we had a more reliable reflector in this type of material is the reason they went to it. And uh, the simulations we've run on the actual docking targets have been very satisfactory, so it is doing the job. At last... The two crafts were only eight meters apart, and the relative speed between them was zero. Stafford did find the ascent stage a little difficult to hold steady, just as Conrad had suspected. But Young slid the probe smoothly into the dead center of the drogue. Stafford rammed the lunar module forward, and the capture latches closed with a loud bang. Here's the clip. Show you coming around the far side of the moon this time, just a uh, hundred feet apart, holding that attitude, preparatory to docking uh, in another uh, five or six, seven minutes. Uh, we'll listen in to a mission control. We have them piped in here now to hear the first acquisition of signal. As we acquire them on the 16th revolution here. This is the voice of Jack Riley, voice of mission control. We have control. capability on both this revolution number 16 and on revolution number 17 to receive television. Television is scheduled for the 17th revolution during the ascent propulsion system burn to depletion. However, the capability does exist to receive it, and uh, it's possible we might have an unscheduled transmission. We're not sure. We should have AOS now on uh, Charlie Brown any second. Hey, uh, Nippy, this is Houston, now you read. Good for us, Mr. Pip. Hey, Joe, uh, we're about ready to dock. Stand by. Very good. We'll call us. We'll call you. Roger that. <laughs> Tom Stafford says, don't call us, we'll call you. They're going to be a little bit busy docking these spacecraft. It's got to be done within 
six miles an hour, which is the absolute ultimate of speed that they could come together, and actually it's done much, much slower than that, down under a mile an hour, around two-thirds of a mile an hour as they close. It's uh, like parking that new automobile in a garage with not very much clearance on either side. We should hear conversation uh, would be expected between uh, John Young flying the command module and Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan in the lunar module. The lunar module uh, makes the approach. Okay, John, you're into about five feet, babe. Looking beautiful. Should be seen out of the lunar module window in our simulation here. A capture? Yes, thrusters are off. We got a capture, John. Fire when you're ready. They have docked. Everything was put in here, Tom. Have a capture dock. Said capture dock, which means a soft docking. depressurizing the tunnel for the undocking sequence and now Tom Stafford is asking John Young if he thinks they ought to attempt to repressurize the tunnel they could... we are back home Almost. we are back home okay. how easily man adapts and how comparative is safety they're 241,000 miles from the earth okay, and they I think they're back home Compared to where they've been, though, they nearly are. They're now connected with the engine that can bring them home and the spaceship that can bring them home, which the lunar module can... Negative, you know, we're standing by until you got some time. Okay, Joe, uh, the nominal, the, the, the run of it was uh, the best sim we've ever had, right up the pike all the way. Uh, we'll talk about it later. I'm going to start uh, going through the... Uh, Tail end of the activation checklist for the absurd depletion is Tom and John will start on the tunnel. Roger that. John Young working in the tunnel. They have to uh, 
remove hatches. Jimmy, this is Houston. One thing we would like for you to do um, is go to secondary on the CO2 canister. We'd like to monitor that one uh, while you're getting uh, cleaned up there. That's the carbon dioxide. Stafford and Cernan had been gone for more than eight hours, and they were ready to get back into the command module and rest. But a few tasks still had to be completed. Well, at this moment, uh, Tom Stafford and Eugene Cernan, having flown closer to the moon than man has ever flown before, to within 10 miles of the moon on their first pass this afternoon, 13 and a half miles on the second pass, which for eight minutes of wild gyrating of their spacecraft gave all of us on the ground a near heart failure and obviously shook them up a little bit too. They are back safely now connected to the command module. They will uh, remove the hatches after pressurization. They will prepare the lunar module for jettisoning, uh, for being dropped from the command module and then set it up so that they can fire by remote control its uh, ascent engine again and send it into a solar orbit, its work having been completed. In about uh, 45 minutes to an hour from now, they should be climbing back into the command module and uh, let poor old Snoopy go bye-bye. Uh, uh... As you heard, the ascent stage of the lunar module was to be jettisoned once Stafford and Cernan were back safely in the command module. Now here's a clip on the procedure for abandoning the limb. And Bill Stout and Leo Krupp out at uh, North American and Downey can tell us about it. Walter, as you pointed out, even though they're going to get rid of the limb, they're very busy right now tidying it up. And not only that, they're using it as kind of a multi-million dollar wastebasket, putting a lot of things in it that they don't want to take back to Earth in the command ship. Leo, what do they go through at this point in shifting cargo back and forth from one to the other? Well, Bill, the first thing John's going to do is pressurize the tunnel hatch so he can remove our... He's going to pressurize the tunnel so he can remove our tunnel hatch and get up there and inspect to see that all 12 of those docking latches are engaged. Then he'll start removing the tunnel hardware so we'll have the passageway open between the two vehicles. Now, the one thing different uh, in this portion of the flight is, is that we're going to put the probe and drogue into the lunar module and it will be strapped down in the lunar module and we'll be jettisoned with the lunar module and go to the sun. So we will not be carrying that hardware with us anymore after do we this. Do, that? do we do that, Leo, just to get rid of that much extra weight? Uh, yes, we don't want that weight on the front end of the, uh, of the command module, and uh, this is a convenient way to dispose of it. So we put it in the lunar module. What else do you put in there before breaking the two apart? Well, I don't know. I... Uh, would imagine the, the crew will probably take another good drink of the of the lem water before they leave, and uh, I don't know whether they'll bring that with them into the command module or leave it in the lunar module. Water without hydrogen gas? I should think they'd bring it in. Well, it has iodine and uh, may also have a little gas in their water, too, I understand. But I, I think the point of all this is, Walter, that uh, they're going to be busy in there for an hour or so, Leo, before they finally come in and button it up and say goodbye to lem forever? Yes, they have a... Uh, a lot of work to do on the LEM system to prepare it for the separation and also the uh, apps burn to depletion, which will be a ground control burn. So they do have to set up some controls in the lunar module. So it's about an hour and a half from now before they break off and perhaps a half an hour after that before they give it the burn that will send it into orbit around the sun. And the people at Grumman at Bethpage, Long Island, Walter, may regret it, but that's the last any of us will see of LEM ever again. 
Indeed, I think we've all become rather fond of uh, Snoopy in this flight, uh, not uh, solely because of that uh, endearing code name for him and all that uh, envisions for us, but uh, because that lunar module number four, as it is called, technically has performed so beautifully. We might... When all three astronauts were settled in, they cut the lander loose. Flight control then fired the ascent engine to fuel depletion, 249 seconds, and sent the lunar module into solar orbit. The crew watched it move away. Snoopy was soon out of sight. Here's the clip. This is Apollo Control at 108 hours, 16 minutes into the flight of Apollo 10. We're now about 50 seconds from reacquiring the spacecraft. Uh, now in its 17th revolution of the moon. Uh, we expect uh, when next we hear from the crew that uh, Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan will be back in the LAM, or rather back in the command module. Uh, we'll, shortly after acquisition, be scheduled to separate the LAM, uh, followed by the unmanned ascent uh, stage burn to depletion, and we hope to have uh, television coverage of that event. Our LEM telecom reports that we have good signal strength on the high-gain antenna. This is Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, this is Houston. We read you loud and clear. How are things going? Uh, we're all back in the command module. The tunnel's all locked up, and we're in attitude, and uh, standing by the SEP here when you give us the word. Okay, uh, we're looking good for SEP here now, uh, Tom. Okay, Joe. Now, again, that tunnel won't fit, so what we've done is pumped our cabin pressure up about 4 PSI above it. More dense, and uh, we're holding real good. Uh, Roger, I understand, Tom. Okay, uh, now, what attitude do you wish us to go to when we, uh, after we separate, over? Okay, uh, Charlie Brown, stand by just one. I'll get you, I'll get you that. Charlie Brown, this is Houston. Uh, we'll get you some gimbal a uh, angles for that attitude after SEP. In the meantime, we'd like for you to, on your cryo H2 heaters, on tank one, go to auto. And on tank two, go to off, please. Uh, Roger. Now, do we have a go for power alarm here? Okay, Charlie Brown, this is Houston. We're standing by for logic. Uh, we'll give you a go on the power alarm here in just a minute. I got the logic off. You want me to turn it on? Roger, uh, Charlie Brown. Go ahead and uh, turn okay, it on. Okay, we're armed. Okay, Charlie Brown, this is Houston. We, we uh, got your switches on now. And Charlie Brown, this is Houston. Your gimbal angles for attitude after step. Our roll 180, pitch 252, and yaw three balls. Roger, roll 180, pitch 252, and uh, yaw is all balls. That's the firm. And, and when do you want us to separate, Joe? Okay, one. So we can go ahead and separate now, uh, Charlie Brown. Okay, Houston, we'll give you a countdown. We're all set to go for step, right? That's affirmative, Charlie Brown. We're standing by for your count. Give you a five count. Four, three, two, one, fire. Cabin pressure's holding. Snoop went someplace. Houston, uh, Charlie Brown, over. Roger, Charlie Brown, go. Dan, when he leaves, he leaves. Yeah, okay, don't back into that dude now, John, when you get turned around. Are you keeping it in sight? Yeah, okay. Joe, he took off so fast. He's gone. He went right into the sun. 
Well, Roger, copy. We don't have any idea where he went. He just went boom and disappeared right into the sun. Uh, you're giving us gimbal angles that allow us to burn out of here. We'll be okay. Okay, stand by. After Snoopy's departure, the only thing left to do was the ascent stage burn to depletion, which was controlled remotely by Houston. Here's the clip. Okay, Charlie Brown, this is Houston. We've had Ullage uh, arm the engine. Okay, we got ignition on Snoopy, uh, Charlie Brown. Hey, I may see it out there. I'm not sure, but I think I do. I do. Very good. I'll see if I can tell you when he burns out. Oh, it's a long burn, though, isn't it? Four minutes. Yeah, can you tell which way he's going? Yeah. Babe, it's just fire to me. I think he's going up. But, see, I'm not right side up either, but... He's going, Joe, and as long as I can see the fire, I guess he's going the other way. Roger, from down here, it looks like he's doing real good, you know. Hey, Joe, would he be burning away from us? Sort of like, uh, maybe his attitude's local horizontal or close to it? Uh, Charlie Brown is Houston, that's affirmative. He should be uh, going in that direction. Yeah, I, I got him out my right-hand window here. He's getting smaller, and he's still on fire. How much more burn time has he got? Uh, stand by, I'll find out. Hey, it just went out. Okay, uh, we've got him still maybe burning. Maybe the sun went down. Yeah, maybe. We've got him still burning, Gino, in about 40 seconds of burn time yet. Okay, maybe. I, that looked like him. Maybe it wasn't. Dick says he thinks he may have turned around and probably burning back at I'm you now. Uh-uh, I fixed those switches so he couldn't do that. I'm glad to see that he's burning that. I didn't screw up or something in there. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember now what I forgot in there, what I, what I left in there, my helmet or something. Uh, the way he took that, off, it doesn't look like you left did, very much yeah. in there at all. Man, we had places and probes and droves and all sorts of things on there. How far will you be able to track him? Uh, probably for several hours. Is he really going to the sun? Well, he's going that general direction. Yeah, I, I feel sort of bad about that because he's a pretty nice guy. He treated us pretty well today. Roger, that's firm. That's what I talk about using up a piece of hardware, though, ain't it? Now, Roger that. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 197 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 10, Ascent Stage Rendezvous, Docking, and Jettisoning. We are now at T-3 to episode 200. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with my, me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that at my homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the most popular level of donors, which are the Apollo donors. There are 31 so far this year. Apollo donors give $50 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, 
Apollo donors. Had a couple afterthoughts this week. Did you ever think you would hear Walter Cronkite say, Snoopy goes bye-bye? <laughs> I laughed out loud at that one. It's so out of character for him. He's usually so professional <laughs> and serious. Maybe he was taking a jab at the childish-sounding names for the Lunar Module and the Command Module. I know that some of the leaders at NASA did not appreciate those names. Now, at the time of Apollo 10, I was nine years old, and I really liked those handles. I thought they were neat. Charlie Brown and Snoopy, just like the cartoon. Did you catch what Deke Slayton said when Cernan was watching Snoopy and then suddenly lost sight of him? Deke said you couldn't see him because he had turned around and was coming back at you. <laughs> that was pretty funny. So really, Snoopy didn't do that, but uh, that was Deke, Slayton, Deke Slayton's attempt at humor. Now, I've got a little surprise for you here. We have a bonus clip this week of Cronkite speaking with Arthur C. Clarke on possible alien life on the moon. This, of course, would be a very low form of life, uh, well, not intelligent life. Uh, yes, uh, probably not intelligent life. But it need, it need not be a low in the biological sense. It might be pretty sophisticated to have adapted itself to that environment. What about the concern that some... Uh, scientists have shown around the world and indeed our own people are showing about the astronauts bringing back uh, some uh, a bug a yeah. virus of some kind from from the moon yes the, the question of uh, back contamination it's it's very unlikely but they are taking precautions against this it's hard to know what precautions are adequate when one deals with a very improbable event which if it does occur may be very disastrous you're multiplying an enormously large number by a very small number how much money should one invest into this um, quarantine arrangement and um, now the intention is in case uh, some of our audience doesn't know when they come back they're going to be quarantined the equipment is all built they're going to be uh, put into quarantine as soon as they get out of the spacecraft and kept in the quarantine. That same uh, quarantine capsule is going to be transported with them right on back to Houston, and they'll be in it for uh, 18 days. 21 days. 21 days, yes. yeah, total uh, time before they come out, uh, which is believed to be adequate enough for any life forms that they may have picked up on the moon to become apparent. Yes, great... again, it's uh, hard to judge because that's the incubation period of most of the infectious epidemic diseases on earth but of course if other diseases exist how long would they take to incubate yeah. and uh, and uh, since we don't haven't built up any immunity to these things I, uh, we we might be wiped out by uh, a bug from the moon that we haven't even identified it's very unlikely because anything there would be so specialized it probably wouldn't enjoy us in the least as we can even say it's the stuff of which science fiction is made a lot of science fiction has been made of this <laughs> Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Wayne and Naomi Holmes donated at the Soyuz level and earned the satellite emoji. Craig R. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Graham M., 
donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji, and Terry S. donated at the Apollo level. We are still at 95 on Patreon with a goal of reaching 150. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could reach 100 Patreons by my 200th episode? Hmm. (laughs) Our overall total this year is at 118 donors with a goal of reaching 300. Please keep in mind that Space Rocket History is entirely listener-supported. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you're enjoying this content that uh, I am providing you, please consider donating. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level through PayPal or sign up with the Patreon for a $1 donation per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters. And we will recognize you at the end of the month. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, I will try to finish Apollo 10. After Apollo 10... The next significant space event in 1969 was the N-1's second flight. Then I will cover the Soviet Luna 15, which was in July of 1969, and it was designed to return lunar samples. Then finally, the series I have been waiting for for four years, Apollo 11. In podcast news, I am eagerly anticipating episode 200. Get your Tang or other orange-colored beverage ready for the Tang ceremony that we will share on episode 200. (laughs) If you want, feel free to post a picture of yourself drinking Tang on Facebook or Twitter. In personal news, I'm still planning to get down close to the Cape for the upcoming rocket launches. I'm now making my calculations for the Trans-Florida Injection Burn. Okay, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 198 up by next Thursday. So long for now.